Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people. Living for today. It isn't hard to do Nothing to kill or die for And no religion too Imagine all the people Living for today You may say that I'm a dreamer but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will live as one. What you just heard is 25 fabulously wealthy entertainers singing John Lennon's Imagine. And despite them all being entertainers, uh, most of them were pretty awful <laughs> um, as an attempt to soothe the pandemic pains of the plebeian masses. Do you feel reassured and inspired, Harry? I, I know I do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel so much better already. <laughs> Just got me, got me off on the right foot this morning. So the song in general and why we played it is aspirational for a sort of post-myth world, which we felt was a good way to start off our last episode about myth and politics. There's no heaven, there's no hell, no countries, no religion. But the song, too, even as it yearns for a sort of post-myth world, is itself also a longing for a myth. It tells us to imagine. Right. Right? Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the possibility of this post-myth world, the possibility of global political communities, no countries, or global myths. And we will be discussing, among other things, fittingly, a book called Imagined Communities. By Benedict Anderson, professor of political science, I think. So we got a few main questions here about global myth and the possibility of post-myth and the prospects for the future of myth in politics. First off... We're going to be asking, what is the relationship between material conditions and myth, or belief and myth? Do we live in a sort of post-truth political age, as some people have been saying, especially about American politics, in which this connection between material conditions and a belief in myth are severed and irreparable? where material conditions really don't have an impact on what people believe, right? Or how they view the world. These things are so so detached. Mm -hmm. That's what people are talking about when they say post-truth politics. So is that the case? What's the relationship between those two things? Another question is, is a global myth or universal human social identity, universal human political community possible? In other words, right, can we overcome that pervasive in-group, out-group dynamic of myth that we've discussed in past episodes? Can we, can that and, you know, those sort of isolated or, or conflictual social identities, can those be left behind? Can we pull everything together? And as a finale of our series and the episode, we're going to bring this entire discussion of myth and politics squarely back to democratic theory. That's the mission of spectacles, right? You know, how can we, how can we learn 
in different ways about how to live in a liberal democracy or what it means to be a liberal democracy or what a a healthy liberal democracy looks like. So we're going to bring it back to democratic theory and democratic maintenance by asking what core thing or lesson, what core lesson can we learn about democracy from this discussion we've been having? Mm-hmm. There have been little lessons along the way, and there are you know some ideas in the background that could certainly be teased out that we've presented. But we're going to really ask that question. We're going to we're going to hopefully give some answers to that that will be useful and and interesting and invaluable. Right. And one of those lessons leads to a question that we'll talk about, which is, what are liberalisms or liberal democracies central challenges? when it comes to myth and social narratives. We've touched on that, not only in these discussions from Birdseye, we've touched on it in some insights about the role of truth and fact in politics and a recent focus that I wrote, but it's core to this this whole series on myth and politics will be, that'll, that'll be sort of a question that we're asking at the end. So if that sounds interesting, be sure to stick with us to the end. And it's gonna be a, Maybe a kind of long episode, but there's a lot of good stuff we're going to be talking about. Yeah. But before we jump into those questions, let's sort of lay the groundwork a little bit, I think, by recapping previous episodes, you know, seeing as this is a conclusion to our series. So I'm actually going to start with our second episode, American Myths and the History of American Myths and Their Relationship to Politics, right? We sort of cataloged, you know, a broad view of American history, a couple different Mm -hmm. narratives that we have, you know, historically told ourselves and that we tell ourselves today. And we also discussed some challenges and defenses of those narratives in in our, you know, that are centrally featured in our modern political conflict. And one of our big conclusions from that episode, I think, was that material conditions shape myth and our belief in myth or yeah can have a powerful impact can have a powerful impact yeah Yeah. and that as material reality falls out of line myth may become less believable and so maybe if we want to have those narratives which we think are you know essential to social cohesion social cooperation you are going to also need policies in place that will make the stories we tell ourselves, for example, right, the the principles of the Declaration, which right. we see as our founding ideals and our, I, the, I, the narrative that runs through American life. Yeah, I think the line that really sums it up from that episode was we said, that, let's forget about trying to reinvigorate the myths of America. Let's reinvigorate the policy. Let's right. reinvigorate freedom and equality you know, that basis of the myth mm-hmm. rather than the myth itself. Right. So this we concluded about this positive relationship between material conditions and the believability and the belief in myth. Yeah. In our third episode, after that, we talked about the QAnon conspiracy theory and this trend that we see, as I said, this reaction where people retreat to fantasy and start believing all these kinds of things with very little basis on reality because reality is so out of line with what one believes that one starts to see reality differently as a way to defend this belief. Yeah. And just to put that in sort of practical terms and context, what we're talking about is right. How mostly white Americans, some fairly well off, some not so well off have reacted against demographic change, immigration, globalization, and there's a belief that they're right. Again, the Q story that there's some, actor embedded within the bureaucracy fighting against the globalist cabal who's restoring America's virtue and its and its virtuous past um, are fighting to do so. And the Donald Trump in, in, in some ways or in every way was the avatar of that virtuous past. Right. Right. However crazy, however crazy that is. <laughs> yeah. And so these, these beliefs in the myth, which are so strong and this perception that reality is so out of line leads to we see some beliefs in order to defend them when it seems like they're under threat becoming divorced from reality. Right. Right. Because if I believe, and this is true of a lot of people uh, who are Q adherents, Mm -hmm. if I believe in the virtue of the American project and the American myths about what it is, if I believe certain things about America, that it's a country for, you know, white Christian people, for example, 
and reality is challenging that idea, then you see this retreat to fantasy because the myth says this is what America is, but reality says it isn't. So the myth shapes a belief about reality that there are somehow some infinitely powerful, evil actors destroying country the country yeah i hope i'm making sense of that where where because this belief in this myth is so strong it ends up actually distorting one's view of reality to believe that something is happening to reality or somebody is warping reality in a way that isn't actually happening right there is no there is no pizza restaurant basement where democrats are eating children (laughs) right yeah i mean and i think sort of putting together those two things right we talked about you know in the second episode sort of how material conditions how material conditions shape what we believe the myths that we tell ourselves you know q our third episode on q you know highlights the way in which what we believe right this retreat to this fantasy conspiracy theory shapes the perceived reality and so what we see then i think is that causality to put it in egghead academic terms should be understandable. A causality runs both ways, right? What you see, the reality you perceive, shapes what you, the reality you see shapes what you believe. And in turn, right, what you believe shapes how what you, you see. How you perceive reality. Right. So those things can be conceived of as potentially mutually reinforcing, or as we've sort of laid out, they can be in tension with one another. And so the idea being, right, that you uh, you know they can also they can be mutually destabilizing right yeah and so i think you know you can sort of draw a, a, a soft hypothesis from that that you know a, a functioning politics is going to require both some narrative which engenders social cooperation social cohesion but also can't do without especially i think in liberal democracy which is secular supposedly rooted in rationality and reason you know material circumstances which are viewed as acceptable and beneficial to all citizens or you know, overwhelming majority of citizens. Yeah, and so then we, it leads us to this question. Given the tensions. Given the tensions that we see in this separation between, this apparent separation between what people believe and then how they see reality. Right. And then, of course, what they believe back again, back and forth. It leads to this question, is America in a state of post-truth politics in which beliefs so powerfully shape perceptions of reality that changes to reality, for example, policy mm-hmm. that improves equality and freedom and things like this, right? in which changes to reality cannot reshape beliefs, basically because this relationship has become so distorted that you can't restore the belief by fixing the apparent inequities or inconsistencies between reality and the myth. Yeah, Because exactly. now you've retreated to these different fantasies where you can't bring people to, to see that and have that impact the, the what they believe about the country. For example, one thing that was going around Twitter a couple weeks ago that I saw a bunch was this survey of people asked, do you feel that Joe Biden as president has done anything to help you directly or personally and something like i don't remember i couldn't find the survey when reaching researching for this episode i don't know where it went but or where it was from but something like 20 or 30 percent of people said no he hasn't and the point that commenters commentators were making about this was that it was indicative of post-truth politics because Biden signed these COVID relief acts, extended COVID relief, and all these extended the eviction moratorium, these things that did directly help lots of people. Right. And so this idea that there are so many people who, despite actually getting that direct help, regardless of their political persuasion, you know, it wasn't like this relief only goes to Democrats. They still didn't believe it because, because their beliefs about who Joe Biden were distorted their perceptions of reality. Mm -hmm. Right this belief that he could do no good. Right. So that is, that's one example that people point to of we do live in post-truth politics. But would you say that we ever lived in a time of quote unquote truth politics? Was there a moment where all that, the things we believed about ourselves had some basis in truth and that we could, you know, accept that certain policies were being put in place that, you know, people benefited from, or has there always been some kind of echo chamber? Yeah, I think the example that comes to my mind of a period of quote unquote truth politics was sort of the post-World War II period. And we talked about this 
in the second episode. There were material reasons to believe the myth that America had this universal goal to defend democracy and that it was a a right way of living compared to other ideologies, which gave it substance and an amount of truth because, you know, we we went in World War II and we helped quash fascism in two different countries, helped to restore democracy there. Mm -hmm. And then we were sort of in a cold conflict with the Soviet Union and communism. And so there were real reasons to believe that America was what it said it was, you know? Right. Of course, there were also reasons like our toppling of, of governments in South America and elsewhere through the CIA to establish any kind of regime. We didn't really care, yeah. but often they became dictatorships for, right. for, for capitalist and trade reasons. Right. So there were, there were material reasons to not believe that was, there were material reasons not to believe that was true, of course, mm-hmm. but there, were, there was a sort of truth politics there where the myth about what America was, was in some ways informed for a lot of people by actual experience and actual, what was actually happening in the right. world. Right, I mean, but I, I, I do think it's important. The book that we read for the second episode, After Nationalism by Samuel Goldman, he discusses how, right, that was an exceptional, right, you can maybe say 1945 to like 1965, right, that that was an exceptional period of consensus, which has not manifested, I think, really elsewhere in American history. So it's interesting, right, that you have, a, that it's, you got, a, it's there, kind of a blip. I th- I th- well, I think post-Civil War era was a, was a similar situation. I, think, I don't think so. I think until Reconstruction failed, I mean, obviously. Things, well, the South was militarily occupied. Right. <laughs> yeah. But among, for example, while Reconstruction was happening, and black Americans actually, in many ways, did have rights to vote in these places. Right, yeah. There was a material reason among those people to believe that America actually could be and was right, working towards point. becoming yeah, yeah, yeah. land I, of the I free. That, yeah. and, and Reconstruction failed very sadly, thanks to Kenyan alum Rutherford B. Hayes. <laughs> but, but I think that maybe, and of course, that's another very short period, like right. 20 years. And of course, it was marred by all kinds of different sorts of violence and, and failures and things like this. But I think that would be another another point where maybe you could you could say it was in some ways a truth or more truth politics yeah right yeah that makes sense so i mean with the note that that it is an exception yeah. to yeah. you know the history of, of america and the history of american politics right that you can look at right that sort of post 1945 post-war era as being you know maybe this unique age of consensus or quasi unique age of consensus yeah they are those periods are exceptional in american history and so maybe we are in an age of post-truth politics Maybe that, in fact, is in some ways the default that right. has been the case for most of our history. Yeah. I think there's good arguments for that. But that m- may be a problem for yeah. us. Right. Maybe it's, you know, it's a pretty large challenge. And so the question is, right, is, can it be overcome? Or, or as you say, are we, you know, is, is, the, is the American myth fading, right? Is it losing its relevance because, you know, it's outdated? I mean, we have this new world of, of global interconnectedness, the Internet, immigration, other things, you know, maybe it's possible that the notion of the American myth, the notion of the American project is not something that can survive, right? We're in a totally, we're in a, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in, we are in a new world. I think we've clearly, you know, undergone so many changes in the past couple of years that we could be at some sort of a monumental point where, I don't know, maybe, maybe our politics can't recover. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's just, you know, a scary thought to sit with, but it's worth considering. Yeah. And I think on that subject, our our first episode explored how myth can facilitate social cooperation and cohesion, but it also has this apparently constant dynamic of in-groups and out-groups. Right. And I think we're reaching a point where it may be vital to ask if that group bubble can be expanded to the point of irrelevance. In other words, can the in-group include... Everyone. Right. Like you said, we're in this global age in which maybe this idea of a distinct, unique American identity Mm -hmm. is 
in part failing because it's not as relevant. Right. It's sort of outdated almost, it seems it could be. Yeah. So can we abandon these sort of national identities and expand these in-groups to include everyone such that there is no out-group? Can we have a global myth? Right. Right. I mean, and I think that's an important question to ask. And we'll sort of delve into that. But I think it is worth, you know, just to lay the groundwork a little bit, right? The American myths that we've been discussing are national myths, myths of the nation state, right? This sort of, you know, the nation state being a sort of discrete territory where a government has a legitimate monopoly on violence. And not all myths have been national myths in history, right? The nation state is a relatively young concept. And here we are talking about or drawing on a little bit the book Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson, that the nation state and the myths that govern the nation state and the practices that govern the nation state are relatively new as compared to the, you know, long history of human society. And Anderson says that the nation is, is, is an imagined community, right? All communities, as Anderson says, they are imagined, right? They're imagined, they're fictional, they're mythological in the sense that not every person can know every other person in a society unless you're talking about like hunter-gatherer bands, right? So in some senses, right, even, you know, the political communities themselves are fictional. I don't know anyone in Montana, and yet we are both Americans, right? Me and some random person in Montana who I don't know are both Americans, but we don't know each other. And so that points to the question, why couldn't we have a global myth? I mean, each, every single political community outside of maybe the family or a very small band of hunter-gatherers where you can know every single person and have a very close bond with every single person, if every single political community is imagined or fictional or some way mythical, why can't we just imagine it bigger, as John Lennon asks us? right. I can't. Or, I mean, and, and or it's as an, the celebrities ask yeah, us. it's an important. It's an important question to ask. Um, I mean, there are obvious right barriers like language and stuff. Language is very important in Anderson's work as for communication. And but stuff we're already like seeing, in some ways, the growth of a global lingua franca right. at a scale that we've never seen before That's of Engli- true. Right. in English. Right. So why not? I mean, maybe not today, but why not at some point in the near future? Could keep growing. Why not at some point in the near future? Why not? Why not a global community, right? Yeah. Governed by global narratives. They're not governed by global narratives, but but reinforced by global narratives of our, you know, inherent shared human dignity and and those kinds of things. Well, so why, I, why not that? Yeah, and I think there's some historical precedent for this idea that you can transcend borders and define political groups with myths. Yeah, I mean, there are... There is, there is historical precedent. I mean, I, I would say, like, think about medieval Christian Europe, right? I mean, you do have sort of discrete political bodies, although they're not, mm-hmm. they're, the borders are much more porous than modern nation states. But you also have this sort of overarching umbrella of Christianity and a shared belief in Christianity, which actually engenders social cooperation in, for example, the Crusades, where all these, these Christian political communities, which are separate and frequently warring with each other, cooperate to strike out eastward and try and, you know, retake the city of, of, of Jerusalem. So I think in that, right, you see that there is precedent for, you know, trans-political cooperation. And social identities. And social so identities, like, right. It, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just each country said, well, I'm French, and I'm English, and right. I'm blah, blah, blah. There was also... I'm Christian. Oh, wait, and I'm Christian. Right. I'm Christian. Right. We're all in different countries, quote unquote, or different political communities, but we share we share this aspect of a social identity, right. which, which transcends the notion of a country or a political community. Right. And I think even besides those things which sort of transcend, because we're also asking, can we not just transcend borders, but can we eliminate them? Mm-hmm. Rather than having a bunch of countries that all co-identify, could we have one great big country of the whole world and everyone in it? There's also some historical trend that gives credence to this idea, which is that if you look over the long view of human history and civilizational development, you know, of course, the graph pings up and down a little bit here and there. But overall, the trend over time has been an increase in the size of political communities right right and the scale of a myth yeah and how many people it can unify and the scale of social identities and how many people they can connect i think a good example of this is this development 
talking about medieval Europe of the Holy Roman Empire into part, most of it, part of it into Germany that we know today. Over centuries. But Over yeah. centuries. It took a long time, but but the Holy Roman Empire was essentially just a collection of little independent principalities, semi-independent principalities all in this region. If you look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire at any point, you know, before probably like the 19th century, it's like, it's insane. It's it's crazy. I mean, you, it, it's a, it, 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 it was, it, as the line often goes, it was neither holy nor Roman, nor was it an empire because it was basically a bunch of little countries and principalities all semi bound together, but with a large yeah, degree by of like autonomy. a nominal monarch. Yeah. Yeah. And so you see, okay, well there's, there's, and they all have their own identities. Like I'm from this place and I'm from this place. And that shaped the way people thought about themselves. Those were different social identities all within this same one empire. Right. Right. There weren't a lot of people who would identify with the emperor before they would identify with their local prince or Lord, mm-hmm. whoever governs their region. And over time, you see this develop into Germany, and there are a couple factors that sort of contribute to it. You see this emergence, first of all, with of this Prussian state in the northern area of this region, right. which unifies a bunch of these little principalities mm-hmm. into the into this group of Prussia and Prussians, and that's sort of an economic community which morphs into a political community and then you see it grow in strength and this narrative of a german nationalism or german social identity arise in response to the french revolution Mm -hmm. the growth of french nationalism and the incursions of napoleon and the other and other french revolutionary armies into this region which give rise to this figure bismarck who says you know we need to unite all of us who share a common language yeah that seems like a natural and ordinary way to define a political community who speaks the same language right except that's not how it was done for a long time a lot of these little a lot of these little duchies all spoke german or different kinds of german but right. close enough and that wasn't a reason to unify, but it's it's mobilized as a reason to unify sort of in response to nationalism from other places, these bigger national groups. Mm-hmm. And so you can see just this over time, this growth of the scale of the political community and the ways in which political communities are defined against each other. We're German because they're French. Right. Right. That historical trend is there. Yeah. And that's just one example. Right. And I actually wanted to sort of, you know, give a little bit of a sort of broad thematic bent to that, right? We, we see how the identities of, right, the identity of German nationalism comes up against, emerges out of a, a response to French nationalism and the nationalism of, of other countries in Europe. That point being, right, that identities are co-constituted, meaning that, you know, my identity partially could be partially response to Philip's identity and his to mine. And we develop them in response to each other, not from necessarily from within ourselves. They're not exogenously given to us. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about an academic paper called Anarchy is What States Make of It by a political scientist named Alexander Wendt. Which we talked about in a previous Bird's Eye episode. Yeah. And basically, right, that, you know, we form these social identities, including, right, nar- which are informed. We form these social identities which are also informed by narratives and and stories that we tell ourselves against each other. But the possibility of that, because our social identities are constructed rather than, you know, necessarily a result of like some inherent essential human nature, some essential German-ness or French-ness, perhaps, right, that lends to the possibility of a, you know, a global community where we all have a shared singular global identity because we construct these identities, not because they're not necessarily... They're um, not inherent. They're not inherent. Like I said with the German language, that's not an inherent reason to draw a political boundary. Right. We we pick and choose right. through circumstance. Right. What's material? What matters? What actually is a unifying force? That's dependent on a lot of things. Right. And we've only seen that grow in our contemporary era. Yeah. If you think about, for example, the United Nations, we have a a global body which has some 
pretty small, but not insignificant governing power over the behavior of nations in the world. And at, at the core of the UN's mission, right, is a, is a language of human rights, a story that we all have this these inherent human rights, and that that should affect the way that countries in the world behave towards each other. It's a, it's a global social identity. Yeah, it is. in human rights. Exactly. No matter where you are, who you are, where you come from, we are each human, and that's a meaningful social identity that grants us certain privileges. Right, right. And it's worth saying that, you know, we've got the Declaration, the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is sort of a, a founding document for the UN. There's arguments about when human rights really come to be prominent in politics, maybe in the 1970s, like 30-ish years, 20-ish years after the, the Declaration. But nonetheless, right, we see that a sort of global story, a global narrative yeah. of human rights has actually come to affect us. And it does affect the way states behave. Yeah, Not and all I think states are like, we believe in human rights, but a lot of them are, and a lot of them adopt the language of human rights yeah, and I because think, it's believed. I think that's, that's the really important thing is you talk about the limited governing power of the UN. Their power to enforce human rights is quite limited, but the fact that they exist and a lot of people believe it and believe in them and the legitimacy of the things that they say does affect behavior. Right. So to, to, to an extent. So this is an example of these ideas can be universal. Right. Social identities can be universal and they can shape human behavior. Exactly. I think another example you see sort of maybe more really strong material changes to people's behavior, at least mm -hmm. stronger is in the EU, European Union. You see with the EU, its development over time, we've seen a construction of this sort of trans-border European identity. There are actually many people in Europe who, if you ask them, and I'm fairly certain I studied abroad in Europe my the beginning of my junior year, and I did a European Union studies program there. And I'm fairly certain while I was there, I read a survey about the number of people who would rate their identity first as European and second as their respective nationality. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a shocking amount. I remember, I can't think of the exact percentage and I didn't look for the survey because it just, I was just reminded of it. I didn't think of it previously, but some, some shocking amount of Europeans actually do identify as European first. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Before their huh. national identity. That is a great example of this growth of the social identity to a larger scale and its ability to transcend borders and national governments. I think part of the way the EU has been successful is that it has diminished the material importance of those borders. Right. For example, you can go from Belgium to the Netherlands, to France, to Germany. You can go anywhere you want within most of these countries. You don't need a passport. Right. There are no border checks. You know, goods travel freely, no no customs, no nothing. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, and also, there are certain policy areas, a lot of economic policy areas and, thing, and regulations. Right. One that comes up often in the news is like European food regulations, for right. example, food standards and farming standards and things like this. That stuff is actually governed by European authorities. Right. If you live in Germany and you're a German farmer or you go to a German grocery store, the stuff that's in there, the stuff that you're allowed to do as a farmer is not decided by the German government. It's decided by the European government. And so you see this diminishing importance of national identity materially, this mm -hmm. diminishing importance that then reshapes the social identities to have a diminishing level of level of regard for those national identities and those national governments. Um, that said, the EU's project of developing this European identity is it's mixed. For example, the French president Emmanuel Macron has made a big stink over the past handful of years as he's been president about how the European Union needs to stop taking in new members. Mm -hmm. They need to deepen their ties within the Union because these things, these ties that are tying these countries together are weakening. 
Mm. An example he cites is Brexit right. and growing Euro skepticism among different member countries right. and the possibility that other countries will leave because they've focused on expanding rather than rather than consolidating that social identity of European. A, good, a great quote about this, I, a great quote about this I want to read is from The Economist's cover interview of Emmanuel Macron from 2019, November 2019. Macron says... Europe was built on this notion that we could pool the things we had been fighting over, coal and steel. That, of course, is a reference to the European coal and steel community, which was the sort of predecessor to the EU. Right. It then structured itself as a community, which is not merely a market. It's a political project. But a series of phenomena have left us on the edge of a precipice. In the first place, Europe has lost track of its history. Europe has forgotten that it is a community by increasingly thinking of itself as a market with expansion as its end purpose. This is a fundamental mistake because it has reduced the political scope of its project essentially since the 1990s. A market is not a community. A community is stronger. It has notions of solidarity, of convergence, which we've lost, and of political thought. And I think that's just an insightful comment about the way in which we can see the social identity growing. But mm -hmm. if those really deep material connections aren't fostered, the social identity can start to crumble and fall away. Well, I think it's also interesting because you see there in that quote, right, that there is a sort of myth-making about Europe, right? I mean, yeah. he says, right, Europe is a community. We've forgotten that we're a community. I mean, probably We've right, forgotten before, that we're a community. Before, right, but, or, or just like, you know, probably before the 20th century. And that's a, that's a, probably, that's a, generous, that's a generous term, maybe even before 1945. I, I, I would assume that most Europeans did not think of themselves as a community, not but a, 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 novel, a novel myth, a novel narrative about a European community community emerged after the war after here the he is World saying war. it's in our history right. when past 60 years ago no it isn't <laughs> right yeah right so i think that that you know you see that the myth helps sort of undergird right that that identity that europe yeah. is a community yeah and i think that that's very interesting you see as we're saying that these myths have some potential right to go global even as as well, we're seeing that there are these obstacles that Europe yeah. is, is, is in many ways, it's struggling with, with, with issues. I mean, you know, I don't expect the European Union to break up anytime soon, but it is struggling in some ways. And this sort of leads us into, yeah, there are these historical and there are these contemporary positives for this argument that we can have a global myth. But we've seen just there is an example of how tenuous this progress mm -hmm. is and how difficult it is. Right. And I think another thing that Macron talks about in this art, in this interview, is what he calls the brain death of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and I think that might be a contemporary example of this sort of crumbling of here of of heretofore transborder or transnational myths and social identities. Right. This sort of transatlantic democratic Western European American identity, which views itself as Democratic first, democ democratic first before, m maybe before these these individual national identities, or at least it was trying to progress in that direction. Right. Because we've seen the decline of this block and this alliance mm -hmm. in recent years. We see frequent disagreements, claims like Macron makes in the interview that America is not behaving cooperatively and it's just bullying everyone. And we see, like in Afghanistan, now Britain of our special relationship, our old friend, Boris Johnson, has been pointing his finger at the U.S. and Joe Biden and saying, you guys screwed us. Right. You guys left us out, hung us out to dry. And there's these accusations of betrayal. And so you see... This is very tenuous when states have different interests to build these trans-border identities and, and, and alliances. Right. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I and mean, it's, it's interesting that you see perhaps, I mean, Macron is, is concerned about, about European ties. My, my suspicion, and I'm not a Europe expert, is that European ties among certain European communities are likely to continue further integrating. But at the same time, there might be a, a break off in the, you know, the transatlantic alliance, right? You know, I think certainly Donald Trump's presidency was a blow to trust between Europe and the United States. And Macron blames Obama, 
but oh that's interesting i mean that's very interesting because i was going to yeah. say as well right i mean even now that we have a, a new president who says you know america's back who puts a lot of emphasis on the transatlantic alliance you know there are some crucial divergences and it's it seems like europe doesn't necessarily trust the united states anymore yeah. um they're also, you know, forging a somewhat different path with respect to how they might deal with China, each the United States versus Europe. Climate change, there's there's a vast rift in, in climate policy between Europe and the United States. So I think you would, you're seeing maybe there's like, maybe there will be further European integration. Maybe it will overcome its challenges. I tend to think that it probably will. Yeah. But at the same time, you're seeing some kind of a breakaway from the transatlantic, transatlantic alliance, which I think dominated how global politics functioned for or certainly the second half of the 20th century and yeah. you, know, you know a solid you know decade or so of 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 the 21st so that yeah. is that maybe even not the 21st because you know a lot of Europe were not fans of Iraq but anyway yeah and I, think, been a I think one other thing that Mac not to keep going back to this interview but it is very interesting and we'll link it in the show notes because it gets at a lot of these tensions that we're talking about mm -hmm. Macron points to this fact that nato was constituted against the warsaw pact of the soviet union and the soviet bloc this alliance right and i think that's insightful because obviously the warsaw pact and the soviet union are not around anymore and they haven't since the 1990s right. what the heck is nato doing <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is nato doing um and i think that this is further evidence of just how powerful this feature of co-constitution is in shaping myths and social identities right. it's because nato no longer has that foil yeah now that the cold war is over and it had a lot of momentum for a while but you can see the train is starting to fall apart right. the wheels are coming off the axles yeah right and that's because there isn't this other against which its identity is defined. Right. And this points to, yeah, we can have these transborder, these transnational identities. Maybe they can over time even erase borders, like with the EU going in that direction. But we also see in the example of NATO how tenuous that is because these are most powerful, most resilient, and most important most influential in shaping behavior and identities when they have that foil identity yeah, right. against which they are defined and so that raises a great big question or that that throws a big wrench into the gears of this belief that we're it's a steady march towards global identity because once you've got that what's it constituted against right 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 i mean can we're all humans right yeah, I mean, that, that is, it, it does become very difficult. As opposed to, I mean, if aliens come, then you've got a great shot because we can constitute ourselves against them. Or if we colonize Mars, maybe we'll have some Earth-Mars tension. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But that's an important point is that, you know, there is maybe these, this aspiration of, of a global identity. And maybe you could say, oh, it becomes global or it becomes universal if, for example, I mean, it, it's kind of a cheesy example, but it is one that's used. It's like if there's like an alien invasion, oh, well, you know, Independence Day style team up um, against aliens. <laughs> but at that point, that the, it, the, the, the narratives, the social identity may become global, but they also become particular as opposed to universal because they are yes. constituted against global, something else. Global is no longer a universal identity. Right, exactly. It becomes particular. And so whether or not that in-group, out-group can ever really be overcome is, I think, is a, a question that's been threaded through everything we've been discussing. But I think it's... it's it's Yeah, and I think you can see it. We presented some of these historical and contemporary examples as very favorable to the idea of a global identity. But... Lurking in the background, and all of them is an in-group, out-group dynamic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I talked about the Crusades before, right? That there was this sort of trans-political cooperation between, you know, Christian polities in Europe, but that was set against specifically, right? You know, Muslim political communities that were in, you know, the were in the Levant and that controlled Jerusalem. And I should say, in the Crusades, right? There's this perception of it as this massive civilizational struggle between Christianity and Islam. 
in reality on the ground in in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, that was a lot blurrier. There were Christians teaming up with Muslims to fight against Christians and Muslims. But sort of the, the identitarian, the driving identitarian aspect of it, right, was, you know, the socially construction, socially constructed Christianity against socially constructed Islam, you know, in, in broad strokes, right, doing battle over the so-called Holy Land. And so I think you see, right, even as that trans-political cooperation, or, you know, across communities governed by, you know, a, a sort of agreed upon story, this you know, narrative, I don't want to say story about Christianity, but agreed upon narrative of Christianity. Stories can um, be true. Stories can be true. That's a good point. Suggests that even then juxtaposed against something else, you know, th- that cooperation is a product of conflict between identities, which I think is important and, to remember. And, and like we noted in the expansion of the scale of social identities with the proof being the unification of Germany over time. Like we said, it was constituted almost principally in in contest with French identity or against French identity. I mean, yeah, I mean, because quite literally, right? The Franco-Prussian War from like 1866 to something. Uh, maybe it was in 1870, right? Germany unified in 1870 or 1871, but the Franco-Prussian War was one of the not the core or deeper ultimate cause of German unification, but it was a proximate cause, right? Prussia against France right. sort of was a, a huge victory for Prussia that I think sort of in a lot of ways set the stage for German unification. Right, right. And in the EU, we're seeing, yes, this growth of this European identity, but we're also seeing what Macron said he's worried about, which is this growing Euroscepticism in different places, this breakdown of those ties and that identity. And I think you could probably attribute that in part to its weakness in failing to identify that other, which generates this infighting within the group, right? And I think we're seeing, like you said, maybe it, maybe this the, the divorce of America from Western Europe in some ways, mm-hmm. strategically and politically. Uh, Macron and others are pushing for this deeper unification. They're pushing even for a common military, common defense force, as it's called, for all of Europe. And that is probably because now that the Europeans are seeing that they might have to fend for themselves, they're beginning to identify other groups against which they are beginning to constitute themselves. Mm -hmm. They're beginning to identify Russia and China and 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 other and other groups, mm-hmm. other social identity groups, mm-hmm. against which now they actually do have to deepen their own identity right. against because they no longer or they fear they're no longer going to have this umbrella protection from the United States, which allowed them to not have to do that. Right. Right. And in the UN with human rights, yes, this there's this universal group. And the proof is this belief in human rights, which shapes pe- nations, states' behavior. But a key question to ask is when human rights and this universal social group or social identity comes into conflict with the nation state mm-hmm. and its interests, right? the in-group, when universal group comes into tension with the in-group, out-group right. dynamic, who wins? Yeah. And I think in the context of war, you see that usually the in-group, out-group dynamic wins. Right. If an in-group sees its interests or threatened, material or even existentially, like in war, human rights start to fall by the wayside. This universal social identity falls apart because that in-group, out-group remains stronger. And when it's convenient and not threatening to observe the universal social identity, it tends to be observed. But when it endangers the in-group out-group dynamic or the in-group out-group identity, it tends it tends to lose. Yeah, I mean, a good example of that would be the United States war on terror, right? I mean, you yeah. know, we have, I hate to break it to readers or listeners, but the United States has not always been in terms of how it treats, you know, civilians in, has treated civilians in the Middle East in the war on terror has not always been in, in, in uh, consonance with certain doctrines of human rights. Likewise, I mean, not, not saying that, you know, the, you know, which is why the UN tries to make 
rules of war. Right. Yeah. So you see that 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 people do have this tendency, right? When conflicts arise, they will retreat into corners. And the fact yeah. of the matter is, there is no level of human social organization that exists, right? really strongly above the nation state, right? You have these international institutions, which, as we have pointed out, do clearly affect people's behavior, but, but you know, they don't have that, they don't have the overarching power to, to organize everyone to overcome their conflicts just by, you know, sitting down at a table and, and hashing things out. War still does happen, although interstate war is not as common as it used to be, I should point that out. And so, you know, War is one way, right, in which this, you know, in-group, out-group dynamic sort of explodes outwards. But there's another way. I think when you look at expanding social identities, it's not necessarily always like this voluntary process of people coming together and agreeing that they have these collective identities or something like that. Frequently involves assimilation. When an in-group and out-group divide is sort of overcome, it's frequently because the out-group is then assimilated into the in-group as opposed to this sort of voluntary coming together. I mean, you, the, development, the development of nation states involves the assimilation of, for example, regional languages or dialects into a national language or dialect, which is standardized. Right. And if you look at right Christianity, if, you, if you're thinking about medieval Christianity in Europe, it, that comes at the, right, there was a lot of forced conversions during right the Crusades period when the Christian identity was very salient or just, right, Christianity is a proselytizing religion, right, assimilated people, right, into a Christian social identity it was not sort of everyone just coming together and shaking hands and saying, yep, we're all, you know, we're buddies now, right? So there's this assimilationist aspect of it, which is, I think, important to remember, right? It's not as simple as as people, you know, coming together and saying, well, we're just going to be in the same group together, right? So war is one way, right? The in-group and the out-group clashing. Assimilation is a way in which the in-group and out-group are brought together. But, you know, through the in-group, perhaps, you know, an elite or perhaps a dominant, you know, a class assimilating some outgroup into its ranks by force or by some sort of soft coercion, which yeah. I think is also very important to remember. And I think the example of Christian Europe is important because in these feudal kingdoms, you know, where you have lots of independent powers separate from the king, right. where the king can't just force his way, you have to have this social identity that everyone shares right a shared of christianity, of christianity. Yeah. right yeah and so instead of force you have sort of this cohesion of narrative mm -hmm. and myth and identity that fills in the gaps right and makes up for the lack of the capacity for to force people into compliance right i think in the flip side you see in a lot of muslim empires throughout history this around the, yeah around the same around time, the same time right? you see a very different approach, right? which is not assimilationist and, you know, did not have the forced conversions or the sort of inquisitions right. like you saw with Christian kingdoms, which were necessary because of that force, that vacuum of force. You see actually a toleration of other religions right. and of, of other groups and social identities within the empire. Because, and this is something actually Machiavelli talks about in The Prince, is that the administrative apparatuses of these Muslim empires were much more centralized than these Christian empires, these Christian kingdoms. Right. So you didn't need everyone to, to convert to Islam or to share this social identity or to share a belief in these unifying myths, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish in a Muslim empire because you're going to pay your taxes because we're going to make you right. That's, you can't, you can't get out of them and you're not going to screw with us because we are strong enough and centralized enough that we can put down any trouble. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that I think is generally true. Right. I mean, I, it's right. I mean, it's an interesting historical aside that it was better to be a religious minority in, in any of the Muslim empires than it was to be in Christian Europe at the same time because of the overwhelming power of Christianity. And Islam was a religion, right, that converted a lot of people clearly, right? It's, oh, yeah. You know, it's the world's second largest religion, I believe, yeah. today. But it's also right. You had to pay, right? I think what you're talking about, Philip, is if you were not Muslim in um, any of these Muslim empires, the Abbasids, the Ottomans, you had to pay a special tax. Yeah. As 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 a Jew, I would probably say I would rather have been I would rather have been a Jew in any of the Muslim empires and pay a little bit more in taxes. You don't want the Inquisition than than I would <laughs> to have been Jewish at any point in medieval Europe. Anyway, but and I think that 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 this points to. These sort of two flip sides. Yeah. The 
what we'll call the Muslim approach versus the Christian approach. So it's not anything about the religions inherently. It actually is to do with There's two different examples. It, it it is it has to do with the administrative structures of the relative of the different political groups. Right. The religion is just sort of the coincidental connector between these examples. You see in this Muslim and this Christian example, a dynamic of force and cohesion, Mm -hmm. of coercion force and belief or cohesion and myth. Right. And the lesson is where one is not present, the other fills in. Yeah. In the Muslim empires or where one is present, the other isn't necessary. Or is less necessary. Is less necessary. I think that less it's still important. very important, right? I would imagine yeah. Islam was very important for holding together the cohesion of the Muslim yeah, empires, right? Definitely. Right. Definitely. But where one is absent, the other fills in, or where one is really strong, the other isn't as important or as necessary. And in a way that points to myth as an alternative to coercive government in some ways, right? If we all believe that we identify with each other, if we all believe that the regime is legitimate and virtuous and that its aspirations are good and noble, that the myth is worth subscribing to and fighting for, you don't have to force people to pay their taxes, for example. Taxes become patriotic. You are funding the good regime. You are funding something which you believe in. Right. With taxes. And of course, there's all kinds of other examples. Yeah. You know, you don't have to force people into the military. People will go sign up to fight because Mm -hmm. they think it's worth doing because they believe in the myth. So myth is in a way, belief in myth becomes an alternative to coercion. And I think that's one way in which it's really important. I think as an interesting aside between this force cohesion dynamic, one present, the other not as present. Rome... The, the Roman Empire is an interesting example of maybe using both through a sort of reverse cohesion or reverse assimilation. For example, when the Romans would conquer and incorporate new groups into the empire, they would, especially later on, frequently after they'd occupied areas for long enough, they would offer Roman citizenship right. to draw in this social identity to unify with the, with, with the center or the capital of the empire. Right. But also, when they incorporated these groups, they would take their gods, they would take their gods yeah. and incorporate them into the Roman pantheon, right. into Roman mythology, right? Which was deeply tied into the, into the politics of mm-hmm. the country, religion yeah. was. And so you see, the Roman Empire had overwhelming force, highly centralized highly efficiently administrated empire, which could put down rebellions all over the place. You can't screw with them. You're going to pay your taxes, all that stuff. Right. But also there was this really clear goal to try to draw everyone in. But what it did almost was it assimilated itself to new groups rather than forcing new groups to assimilate to it. Right. And so this dynamic is always there in human history. Maybe that's just an interesting aside about maybe that was a contributor to the the reach and durability of the Roman Empire. Right. But on this point of myth as an alternative to coercion, it leads us to our conclusion, which is what is the core difficulty of liberalism regarding myth and narrative? And I think it is centrally liberal democracy's attempt to have neither coercion nor cohesion, neither coercion or force, nor cohesion or belief and myth. That's its aspiration. To abandon myth for truth and to have a voluntary democratic society in which nobody is forced to do anything, in, in which you know, you're not forced to work, you have the freedom to do what you want, you get paid wages, that's the liberalism, no coercion, you know, and you're free to spend your time how you like, No one's going to send you to the state-owned factory and make you work. And then in the democratic, you don't need unifying myths and narratives because it's a society rooted in truth and reason. And we're all going to just get together and make decisions rationally Mm -hmm. by voting and these kinds of things. It wants, liberal democracy in a way, wants coexistence without coercion or cohesion through the universal appeal and value of the market. 
That is, the idea is this. The market is going to approve everybody's lives enough constantly Mm -hmm. that you don't need to force people to be a part of the community and you don't need people to believe anything about what the community is because what it does is satisfies the base material interests and desires of people to an extent such that they can coexist with each other and work voluntarily together and cooperate. Right. And in some ways that's a very intriguing and appealing promise, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think one thing that I would say, and maybe this, you know, I think that this is the challenge is, you know, our liberal democracy today, any liberal democracy today is structured by coercion, right? It's structured by the state's monopoly on violence, right? It's there. It's there, right? I mean, we, we don't perceive it as much in our daily lives, but that coercion is there. It's the element that you don't break the law because you know that, right, the law will come down hard on you. It has, the state has the capacity to do so, but you have, we've reached a point where coercion has structured society to the point that it does not need to be constantly visible in everything that we do. And this is one of the great challenges that the American myth is facing right now is rooted in this growing belief and perception of the extent of police state power in many communities in America. Right. Right. This goes back to the murder of George Floyd and many others is that it brought to the foreground this state power that's supposed to be in the background. Right. Right. The myth of a free society needs the state force to be in the background, not visible, not paid attention to, Mm -hmm. not acknowledged. Otherwise, suddenly, hell, I don't live in a free society. I live in a police state. Right. You see these phrases and these criticisms going on all the time on the internet now. Right. Yeah, I mean, as as well, right, I mean, as you you point, the the myth of a free society, right? I mean, even even as we believe, and I think this is something that we've talked about a good bit in, in, you know, this bird's eye series and even our previous bird's eye series, right? You know, we, you know, believe that we are the secular society, the society that is, right, free of the constraints of these narratives, but we aren't, right? We, the belief that we are a free society, this belief in our rights, right? They may be true, they may be not, but it's our belief in them. It is in, in some ways, it is a narrative. It's a story that we tell ourselves that, you know, makes, that makes our perceived freedom possible. So even as we want to have, right, there's this tension, even if we want to be in this free society, absent coercion, absent, you know, myths, those things still, those things still exist. But it also creates a problem if all of that stuff fades so far into the background that it's just sort of latent, maybe that makes it harder to believe in this, right? And maybe that may, and when, and when it yeah. rears its head, right? When, when we have these conflicting stories about the country, what the country is, we see that nonetheless, we are still animated by stories and myths. And when, you know, the police are demonstrating clear racial bias or beating on protesters in the streets on, you know, on, on videos that we see on social media, the notion that that coercion is not there also sort of, we, we start to question question that. And so those those stories of freedom and rights become contested. And I think that that is that's that's that that's a serious problem for liberalism and one that I think that we're seeing today in, in a very salient way. Yeah, because even as a liberal democracy or a liberal society doesn't want to have force at the foreground, it needs it in the background because there's this constant need to if things happen if cohesion breaks apart, if sort of the coexistence of the society starts to fall apart, mm-hmm. you need the force to be able to fix it. Right. And so it has to be there. And if the society comes under external threat, you need to have a military, the kind of state force to defend it. Right. So force is always there, but liberalism tries to hide it, put it in a background position behind a curtain. But in a liberal democracy, despite its promise or its desire to forget about belief and myth, you do need to have people believing in a myth about the society, no matter what, right. including or perhaps especially political elites and people in power. Right. Because if all a liberal democracy is, is a happy and convenient opportunity to enrich oneself as much as possible Mm -hmm. 
the idea being that everyone will have enough of an opportunity to enrich themselves that will be able to coexist. If that's all it is, then those entitled to political power or entrusted with political power, if that's all they believe, right? well, they're going to abuse the system as best they possibly can. Right. If that is the narrative, and this is the important point, is that that's that story about a liberal society, even as it proposes to abandon belief and myth and narrative, well, that becomes the narrative. Right. This market opportunity, this economic enrichment opportunity. Right. And if that's what shapes political elites' behaviors, they're going to abuse the system. Right. They're going to enter that revolving door go work at a pharmaceutical company after yeah. they leave office, <laughs> right. do nothing and get paid $650,000 a year because they knew that if they did service to that company while in office, they'd get this sweet gig. Right. Right. And so that doesn't work. Yeah. That doesn't construct, that doesn't help to create a good society with healthy policies mm -hmm. and a healthy democracy and a public service and public servants. It creates public sycophants. Yeah. Right? And so that points to, that is perhaps the core challenge of liberalism, is that in trying to abandon myth for reason and self-interest, it creates a myth of reasoned self-interest. Right. Which is going to undermine politics. It's coercive to democracy. Corruptive to democracy. Yeah. So you need to have some story, no matter what liberal democracy says about not needing one, that can pull people together and motivate them to try to do the right thing for the country and for that political community. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, maybe this is getting a little bit meta here, but right, we've been discussing for four episodes, right, that we have these myths that animate us. And I would say, right, like, am I aware that the certain aspects of our of our national story are, are myths am i you know do i know that right that that certain things are stories that we tell ourselves that may not that yeah. may be irrational and not yeah. necessarily in reality i still believe them right yeah. i mean like you know that's i think i can't i can't help but believe that i think it's a human thing to do you know i think that it's i prefer a question of how powerful that belief is right it's i i you know i have a firm belief in human rights and, the, and natural rights and, and the equality of, of human beings and i don't think that those things are myths i think that the way that that they're constructed in our narratives are you know mythical to some extent but that doesn't change the fact that i believe in them so i don't think it's necessarily you know we don't we're not at a point where it's like oh we just don't believe our myths so what the heck are we going to do you know i think you can believe stories even if you know that they are just stories yeah that's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing for discussions like these between the editors from Bird's Eye and Reflections. If you'd like to listen to each new article of focus and insight from Spectacles read aloud, there's a link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment about this episode, there's a link in the show notes to our website, where you'll also be able to subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already. Lastly, we know this was a long episode, but there's a finale to our whole discussion of myth and politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you found it interesting and intriguing, and we hope that if you did, you'll share it with others and tell them about it, and tell them about spectacles and what we're doing. Anyways, we'll be back next week with something new from Bird's Eye. Until then, thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.